preacher has to have the power on before he can preach, right? Amen. Good morning, everyone. I tell you, the congregational singing today has been wonderful. The choir has been, was great, and I was just thinking that uh, if you can't preach after that, you just can't preach. So here I am with the opportunity to share God's Word with you again. I want to say uh, to you that I have great appreciation for our pastor who uh, has kindly and graciously allowed me to come on two Sundays back to back. I don't get to do that very often anymore and um, enjoyed uh, handling a, a short series of four sermons with you last Sunday and closing today. And I trust you're doing well as we come together for worship. It's been a wonderful time so far. And I trust God will speak to our hearts as we move forward. Our text for this morning is found in Philippians chapter 3. We'll begin in reading in just a moment in verse 7, and we'll read down through verse 16. So find your place there in Philippians chapter 3. And before we read the text, I just want to kind of bring our minds back on uh, track. I know that a lot of things have happened since last Sunday night you're busy people we're all busy people and a lot of things going on but uh, this last Sunday and today I really felt impressed to deal with four Bible characters whose lives illustrate for us keys that unlock God's purpose in our lives now not just one of these keys is enough it has you have to have a full ring of these keys as you find these truths and the word of God, but the characters are or were last Sunday, Moses and Joshua, today the Apostle Paul and Jesus. Now, I'm still trying to help us to get on the same page moving forward because we're going to look at Paul this morning, but last Sunday morning we looked at the life of Moses, raised as Pharaoh's grandson, the second most powerful man in Egypt when he was 40 years old, heir to the throne. But in his DNA and in his heart and in his passion and compassion for the Hebrew people, uh, he took matters into his own hands. He saw the slavery, he saw the bondage, he saw the mistreatment of the Hebrew people. And uh, he sensed that he had a, a greater purpose in life, and that was to be their deliverer, their emancipator. But he took matters into his own hands and he killed a man and then tried to cover up what he had done. Now, I think uh, Moses had right motives, but he had wrong methods. And sometimes we have right motives, but we have wrong methods. Moses saw his purpose, but he had to come to a place of absolute obedience to God in order to, for that purpose to unlock. And it took 40 years in the desert for him really to come to that place of absolute obedience to God when he came to the burning bush and heard the voice of God. And then last week, we, last Sunday night, we saw Joshua. And Joshua's purpose in life was to take the people of God into the promised land, to take them into the fullness of life. We could apply John 10.10 10 to, jo to Joshua's ministry. I, Jesus said, by the way, Joshua is the same word for Jesus in the New Testament. We talked last Sunday night about the Joshua of the Old Testament meeting the Jesus of the New Testament there at the wall of Jericho. John 10.10 10 says, uh, the thief has come but to, 
to kill and to steal and to destroy, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So Joshua's purpose was to be that human instrument by which God would take his people into his purpose, into the fullness of life, that land that flows with milk and honey. This morning we come to the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul had to come to a a point in his life that he discovered the key that would unlock God's ultimate purpose for him. And uh, that that key, as we're going to see this morning, is the key of single-mindedness. And we'll come to that in just a moment. But tonight we'll see the last character, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll go to his garden prayer there at Gethsemane where he cries out to his father, not, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus fulfilled his father's ultimate purpose for his life on the cross when he came to the place of absolute surrender to his father. Not my will, but your will be done. So I hope you're seeing the thread of commonality and these, uh, these words, obedience, submission, single-mindedness and full surrender coming to this place of God fulfilling his ultimate purpose in our lives. Let's look at the word of God, Philippians 3 and verse 7. And Paul has just given his credentials. He's talked about his position, his pedigree. Then in verse 7 he says, But what things were gained to me, These I have counted lost for Christ. But indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and he found in him and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is uh, from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Paul realizes in verse 12 that he's got a long way to go. He says, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Now, in that verse, Paul is saying, I want to get a handle on God's purpose for my life. I want to live out God's purpose, not my purpose. And then he said in verse 13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Right in the center of verse 13, this one thing I do is single-mindedness. Verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. We have just read the word of God. The Word of God. Could I ask you this morning, are you a single-minded person? 
Do you have a focus? Do you have an intentionality? That's a word that came up in Southern Baptist life a few years ago, and I'm not hearing as much now as I did for a long period of time about intentionality in ministry. We who attended those seminars and conferences were hearing people say that if you're going to grow a church, if you're going to have strong and vibrant and fruitful ministries, there has to be an intentionality. In other words, there has to be a focus, there has to be a goal, there has to be a plan, there has to be an ambition. You can't just kind of sit idly by and expect that these things are going to happen. There has to be an intentionality to our approach to these things. But I wonder how many of us have that intentionality, that single-mindedness, that pursuit, as Paul was saying here. We've become busy people. And I know in my life, and I know in your life, we're, we're very busy. We are busy to the point of distraction. We're busy to the point of, of weariness. And sometimes we don't have the right focus. We don't have the single... We're looking at a lot of things instead of the one thing. And a lot of things sometimes overshadow the one most important thing. We live in the age of what is called multitasking. Have you heard that word? Multitasking. I meet people on the highway every day who are multitasking. They're talking on the phone. They're driving 80 miles an hour, sometimes over the line, the yellow line. Some of them, and this is not to mean to exclude the guys, but some of them are putting their makeup on. Eyes right up in that little mirror, 80 miles an hour in a cell phone. I, I just, I, I'm making a point, so you got real quiet. When you get quiet, I know something's not quite right. Come, come back to me now. We're going to be okay. My wife and I have this discussion about multitasking because recently uh, uh, a neuroscientist did a study and, and, and the, his findings were that it's an impossibility. Multitasking is an impossibility. He says we're not doing many things at one time because the brain has to disengage, reengage, disengage, and reengage. And some people can just do that faster than others, but it's still one thing at a time. I told my wife when I read that article, she said a man wrote that article. And she said, the reason you don't believe in multitasking is because you're a man. If you're a woman, you would understand. And I think there's a lot of truth in that because I've seen women who are so capable of doing this kind of thing. But here Paul is in the Philippian letter, I mean in, the Philipp- in a Philippian jail writing this great letter. And I, and I see right off the bat, if you're familiar with the book of the, Paul's letter to the Philippians, you know it is known as the letter of joy. But he wrote it as he was imprisoned, incarcerated, and chained to a Roman soldier. But 17 times, or 16 times, he uses the word rejoice or joy. 11 times rejoice, 5 times joy. So permeating this letter is this whole thrust, this whole message of joy, 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 joy. I ask myself, how can a man in such a bleak circumstance, he's living right now in a jail under the shadow of his impending death, and yet he's writing about joy. How can a person do that? How can a person live under such stress and strain and problems and even facing death and still have such joy emanating from his life? And I'll tell you the reason is he was a single-minded Purpose. He person. He was not focusing on his circumstances. He was focusing on his Savior. A Godward focused life is a miraculous life. People who have their hearts and souls fixed on Him can do incredible things. Single mindedness. 
Some of you have heard or maybe even read of the life of Peter Strudwick or read his book. The book is entitled, Come Run With Me. Peter Strudwick logged over 20,000 miles in jogging and running and marathons. Three times he ran in the Pikes Peak Marathon. One time he ran in the African Mountain Kilimanjaro Marathon. And he had all kinds of ribbons and awards for his running. He was known as a runner. But what makes Strudwick's running so remarkable is that he was born without feet. His legs ended at the ankle. He, had, he, had a, he has a thumb and a finger on his left hand, and his right arm ends at the wrist. And you ask, how can a man who has no feet, who has only one hand, who has these physical impairments, write a book about come and run with me, logged over 20,000 miles running marathons up and down mountains. I'll tell you why. Peter Strugwick was a single-minded man. He had a focus, and he maintained his focus. What's wrong with the church today? What's wrong with my life and your life as Christians, as followers of Christ? So often is it, it is that we're not focused. We're distracted by many, many other things. Paul, before the verses that we just read, talked about his pedigree, talked about his degrees, he talked about his influence, he talked about his status and position in life, and then he comes to the place that he says, I count these things as loss, I count them as rubbish, I count them as dung. And he says, the thing that matters now, verse 10, is that I might know him, that I might know the power of his resurrection, that I might know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, And this one thing I do is forgetting those things which are behind me. I press on to that which is in front of me. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of two centuries ago, said it is better to say this one thing I do than to say these 40 things I dabble in. When I read that statement by Moody, I'm familiar with the word dabblers. I think it's an Arab Alabama word. We used it a long time ago. Dabble, 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 instead of being focused, just dabbling in things. And I, and I tend to be a dabbler sometimes, and you may be as well. And t- so often dabblers never finish anything. They're just dabblers all the time. Moody says it's better to say this one thing I do than just to dabble in a few things here and there. Now, I'm, I'm right there where you live. Sometimes when you're listening to a preacher, you say, you don't understand. You're a preacher. I get that a lot. Most preachers do. But listen, we're real people, too. We have feet of clay. We have the same issues that everybody else has, same challenges. And one of the challenges that I have in my life is that I'm an extreme sentimentalist. I've never thrown anything away that anybody's given me. It's a good thing we have a big basement. It looks like a museum. And, uh, and my wife tends to be much the same way. And we're at that age now. I've reached that age that I've seen other people reach over the years when, you know, you work, 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 get a big house, big house, bigger house, more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. And all of a sudden, you seem to reach this peak and you start down the other side and you start giving everything away. Get smaller this, less of this, smaller that, less of this. And I'm beginning to understand why. 
Because there's, you reach a point in life that rather than you owning your stuff, your stuff owns you. And it takes more time to manage it and keep up with it and figure out where it is, what box it's in, that it's worth. We need to be focused in our spiritual lives. Now, Paul gives us the key here in his own life, and I want us to look at what he did. There, there are two or three things, and this, this will be the sermon, the two or three things that Paul did that moved him forward in God's purpose in his life. You and I must do the same thing. And the first thing I see is that he forgot his past. Verse 7 says, but these things I count but lost. Verse 10 or verse 13, he says, I do not count myself to have apprehended but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Paul is forgetting. He says, those things, those things are gone. That my, my pedigree, my, my status with the Pharisees, my theological degrees, my influence on the secular world, the anti-Christian movement, all of those things gave me power and prestige and position, but those things are in my past. And I'm moving forward into a new future, a new life. Some of you are historians, some of you teach history. And you're aware of the fact that history is recorded around tragedies and disasters. It's recorded around notable events and wars and fires and floods. And many times our life history is registered around those kinds of things. When you have family meetings and you begin to reminisce so often, you'll go back to a major crisis, a major event in your life that marked that time in your life. Paul is at such a time in his life here. He's making a turn to a new future. He's no longer the persecutor of the church, the murderer of Christians. He's the preacher of the gospel, taking the message of the gospel to the Gentile world. How did he do that? He had to forget some things that were behind him. I think there are two things... There are at least two things that Paul forgot. Number one, he forgot his past sins. Now, the reason I even talk about past today is that that we all know that past can be a bondage. There may be somebody here this morning whose past is a bondage. It, It has you in shackles. You can't think about the future. You can't really be liberated to move forward in the future because of something in your past. I'm glad Paul didn't get bogged down in that because he had quite a wicked past standing there watching Stephen being stoned to death, which was the first step into his movement to become a great antagonist to the church. No telling how much blood was shed and how many lives were taken, at least at the directive of Paul, if not at the hand of Paul, Saul of Tarsus. And he could have been in a place in his life, he said, I've done, I've done too much evil, I've done too much bad, I've done too much wrong, I've done too much damage. Nobody knows what I've done. Nobody knows how vile my heart has been. But we were singing about it just a moment ago, weren't we? He is the one who cancels our sin. He is the one who forgives our sins. John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. That's the operative word, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That means to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You don't need a preacher to tell you what that means. It means the slate is clean. It's washed away. You get a new start. 
I've never considered myself a counselor, but because I've been a pastor, I've had to do a lot of counseling over the years. And I would say the majority of the people that I've dealt with in a, in, a, in a pastoral counseling role has been some issue regarding their past. They could not let go of, of some sin, some wrong, some failure in their life, and they were in grips to that. Ladies and gentlemen, young people this morning, I can tell you on the authority of Scripture, if you want to move forward, if you want to move forward into God's purpose, if you want to move forward to fulfill His his design for your life, you have to come to a place that you say, Lord, I know the, the past has not been what it ought to be and what I wanted it to be and certainly not what you intended it to be in my life. But I ask you to forgive me, cleanse me, and allow me to move forward into a new future. Some of you are bound, possibly bound by past sins. But let me tell you something else. Paul could have also been bound by his past successes. And if I could just say this, this may be a more relevant term to us than past sin. Some of you were looking at me just a moment ago when I was talking about this. Well, that's not my issue. I understand the power of the blood. I understand 1 John 1, 9. I understand being cleansed and forgiven. I understand that what God forgives, he forgets. I understand that when God forgives our sins, he throws them into the, into the sea of forgetfulness and puts up a no fishing sign. I understand that when God forgives our sins, he removes them as far as the east is from the west, from infinity to infinity. Not north to south, because you've got a north pole and you've got a south pole. You can get there and you can get there, but you can't get west and you can't get east. It keeps going, keeps going, keeps going into infinity. That's how far God removes our sins from us. And God has promised never, ever, ever to remind us of a sin that we've repented of, asked forgiveness, and that he's washed away from our lives. And some of you say, if God's not reminding me of my past sins, who is? Somebody is. Well, your friends will, your family will, your enemies will, the devil will. There are a lot of people who will. You will remind yourself, in fact. But God will never bring up a forgiven sin. If it's in the past, it's in the past. And I think most of you understand that. But the other issue that Paul dealt with was not just his sins, but his successes. He didn't give us his resume for no reason at all. He gave us his resume that in this letter that we might understand that he was a man of position. He was a man of influence. He was a man of power. He had successes. And I, I know in my own experience, and I speak as a pastor now over these years of pastoring churches, we, we, tend, we tend to have a great success regardless of what it might be. It might be a ministry endeavor. It might be a revival meeting. It might be whatever it is that brings us to a level that corporately and congregationally we can say that was a high moment. That was a significant moment in, the, in my life and the life of our church. And I'll tell you the danger that kind of gets us in those times is that we feel that that one success is something that, that we can ride out for weeks and months and sometimes years. How many times have you been in a church situation, if not here, somewhere else, and you talked about the good old days, when this happened and when that happened and when that happened and when that happened, when God was moving, when... The church was growing and things, all of those kind of things. I've had those conversations many, many times. And what happened is that we became comfortable in the fact that it was happening in that moment and not carrying out the same principles forward that made that moment possible. 
We have one accomplishment, and we can live years off the one accomplishment. Paul says, I've not only forgotten my past sins, I've forgotten my past successes. You say, Brother Roger, I'm not I'm really not in bondage to a sin. I'm I'm clean before God, clean hands and a clean heart. I stand before him without there's no I'm under an unclouded sky. I have good fellowship with God in terms of this matter of sin. That isn't to say you're perfect, that any of us are, that we don't sin because we all do. But it means living in habitual sin and deliberate disobedience. You say, that's not my problem. Well, our problem may be then that we're resting in past accomplishments. And I'll tell you, let me bring this down to where we, I think we can all relate to it. I, I think the biggest way this falls in, that we fall into this one is that, that we, we, we think that uh, at salvation, once we have come to Christ as our Savior, and we have made that decision, and, our, and we're in, now in a right relationship with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that that's it, that we just, we, we've gotten out of hell into heaven. We've, we, we are living now the, the Christian life, and that's it. But the, the thing is, there's so much more. There's so much more to the Christian life than just getting out of hell into heaven. There's so much more to the Christian life than just being saved and, and then waiting on the time to come for us to go to heaven. There's life to be lived in the meantime. I'm glad Jesus came to get us out of hell into heaven, but I'm equally thankful that he came to get the hell out of us and put heaven in us. And that's what he wants for us. Don't be in bondage to past sins. Don't be in bondage to past successes. But something else, Paul, he, 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 dealt with, he dealt with his past. He had to forget his past. But he also, the text tells us, had to foresee a future. That's right there in the verses we've read. Verse 13 and 14, he says, I, count myself to, I do not count myself to have apprehended. And that's simply a phrase which means I have not arrived. It's just exactly what I was saying about salvation and sometimes stopping right inside the door and not moving forward. Paul says, I have not arrived Could I say something honestly and caringly, compassionately, personally to all of us? Nobody in this room has arrived. No Christian on this earth has arrived. And you may meet men and women who loom over you. I mean, you stand in the shadow as spiritual giants and you say, if they haven't arrived, nobody can arrive. Well, I can tell you on good authority, they have not arrived. Because as long as we're on terra firma and long as we're living in this flesh, we are in a progressive movement. We are on a, we're on a pilgrimage. We, we don't arrive until we get to glory. So let's stay in the game. But look at what he says here. I haven't, I haven't reached, I, I, uh, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. And then he says, I'm reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal. 
And the Apostle Paul's mind, he was, he was in those Greek amphitheaters. He was there where the, the first Olympics were being held. He saw the runners running. He saw them. I was listening to a, a, a young preacher friend of mine on a CD this morning. He preached last week, wanted me to be there. I was here. I couldn't be there. And so he brought me a CD and he said, well, you listen to this. So I started this morning and he's preaching from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 about laying aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset you. And he actually went to the Roman theaters where these uh, great athletic events were held. And he said, we think that today the runners... Those field and track people wear these skin-tight suits and sometimes hardly any skin-tight suit. He said in Paul's day they didn't wear anything, and he was right. They were, they, there was no wind resistance. There was, there was nothing to get in the way. There was nothing to impair. So when Paul pulls up in his mind, in his imagination, the, the imagery of that racer, that runner, he, he probably... And many commentators will agree with this. He probably actually was in those amphitheaters, was actually watching some of those events, got to see some of those events. And he could see, and you can see the runners in modern day field and track and these, these runners who, who are running. And you can see the every, almost every, every sinew of their muscle, every fiber of their being, and they're stretching out. They're stretching out, they're stretching out, and their heart's about to explode, and their lungs are sucking in the air, and every muscle is engaged because they have something in mind. They have a finish line, a ribbon, a gold medal in mind, and there they are pushing, pushing, pushing with all of their might. Paul says, that's exactly what I want to do in my life as a Christian. I, I don't want to go at it half-hearted. I don't want to go at it part way. I don't want to ease over the finish line. I want to go in as a runner as fast and furious as I can go. I know a few preachers. I know a few Christians. When people ask me, is so-and-so going to heaven? I could give you a dozen names right off the cuff here. Uh, people say, you think so-and-so is going to heaven? I sure I do if they don't run past it. Uh, because some people are going so fast and furious, they could just go right on by I'm not there yet. You may not be there yet, but I, I envy that kind of energy in approaching God. Now, I want to be practical about this, so I'm going to make two or three suggestions about some goals that I think we need to aim at. Because sometimes we will say, what, are the, what, what should we aim at? Well, let me give you some, some uh, suggestions, and you can add to the list, because this is a short list, and it should be a very long list. I'm just trying to get the juices going so you can think about it for yourself. Have a goal regarding your spiritual ambitions. Have an ambition to read the Bible. Be ambitious about being in the Word of God. Be ambitious about being involved in the life of the church. The church needs you. The body you are, we are the body of Christ. We, we, God never intended the Christian life to be a spectator event. We're all soldiers in the army. We're all players on the team. Can I get an amen there? It's all of us and each of us. Be ambitious. Crank up your ambition about the things of God. Have an ambition to pray, an ambition to serve more effectively. And then I would say put attitudes on, on that list. Set some goals in the area of ambitions. Set some goals in the area of attitudes. Your attitude toward people your attitude toward church, your attitude toward the circumstances of life. Have you met anybody recently that has a good attitude? 
have, let me say that again. I don't think you heard. Have you met anybody recently that has a good attitude? Have you met anybody recently that has a bad attitude? Mm, boy, you, were, you woke up on that one. Well, I'm going to tell you a personal experience, and I'm near the end of the sermon, so don't worry. Um, when Sandra and I were living in Blount County, I was pastoring Locust Fort Baptist Church. The church is growing, 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 growing. It was the hub of the community. That's one thing, pastoring a church that is a community church. There's no other competition like we have in a town like Oxford and Aniston, surrounding areas. Uh, we can make church the big event in people's lives, and it, and it was. We needed to build a building. I was 30 years old. The strip mining coal business was going, had been going well, but at the time I'm talking about it had begun to, to uh, slow down. And it was affecting workers. It was affecting cash flow in people's lives. And I was saying as a young pastor, uh, we, we're maxed out. We're, we're not only 80% full. We're 90% full. We're standing room only full. We need a building. We need a building. We need a new sanctuary. We need space. We need space. We need space. You can't grow beyond your space. And uh, they were kind, very, very kind to me. Uh, no one was ugly. Nobody got in my face. Nobody, but but they just basically said, Pastor, we're we're not going to get we're not going to embark upon a financial endeavor until we see the economy how the economy is going. This was in the early '80s, and um, so nothing nothing was happening. But I, I knew better than to say too much or express too much more then than I do now. You know, it's one thing about getting older. As you can say what you think and get away with it. <laughs> Sometimes. Well, at least some of you do, I know. I, I don't know if I do. But anyway, I was, I was being guarded. I was being guarded that my frustration and my disappointment wouldn't show because I knew that would be a bad thing. One of my pastor friends, in fact, I'd followed him. He's an older man, old enough to be my father, but... I succeeded him in the first church I pastored after Sandra and I married. He was a wise man, a great Bible teacher, and he kept up with me. And um, we had a weekly newsletter, and I was writing a little paragraph or two every week in that. And one day, I received an envelope from this preacher. He was in Kentucky at the time. And I saw who it was from, and it seemed very thin, like nothing's in the envelope, so I opened it quickly. And I retrieved uh, a clipping from our church newsletter. And it was a paragraph from my article. And this wise old sage, a great man of God, had written across that paragraph, Attitudes are contagious. And you have a bad one. It infuriated me. I was, I was fit to be tied. I, I pulled stationery from my desk drawer and I started handwriting. I got up to several pages giving him a piece of my mind, which somebody told me later you didn't have that much to spare. But I gave him a piece of my mind we lived in the pastorium across the road. It was about lunchtime. I laid the letter down, went across the road, thought I'd talk to Sandra and see if I could settle down a little bit, and I told her the whole story, 
expecting to have my wife to be sympathetic and encouraging. She said, when you get through eating your sandwich, I suggest you go back across the road to your office, sit down at your desk again, tear up that letter, and write him a thank you note. And now I'm mad at my preacher friend, and I'm equally mad at my wife. But I've learned to take her wisdom. I tore up the letter, and I wrote him a thank you note. I still have that little clipping as a reminder that attitudes are contagious, and some people have bad ones. A good attitude is contagious. A bad attitude is contagious. Which do you want to be spreading, the good or the bad? Paul says, I have a a goal, and it's going to involve my ambitions for Christ, my attitude regarding Christ, and I would say set goals thirdly in the areas of actions. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to, what are you personally going to do? Because there's something for each and every one of us. So the aim is to know him. The aim is to know him. The aim is to know him and the fullness of his life. But the last thing this text talks about, and I say it and I close, there is a life that we must fulfill. And Paul knew that. He says, not that I've already attained or I'm already per- perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ is laid hold for me. So what he's saying is, you know, I've forgotten my past. I'm dealing with my present and preparing for my future, and I'm going to fulfill, I'm going to fulfill what God has for me to do. One of these days, we're all going to stand before him. And the thing that we want to be able to know is that we fulfilled his purpose for our lives. And God doesn't make duplicates. Thank God for that. He doesn't make duplicates. He only makes originals. I'm looking at a room full of originals, not a duplicate in the room. That means there's an original purpose. There's a unique purpose for every person here. That's good news, isn't it? Amen. Let's stand together for a word of prayer and we prepare to sing an invitation song. Lord, we ask you in these closing moments to bring forward those whom you'd have come. And Lord, if there's one who does not know you as personal Savior, if there's more than one who doesn't know you as personal Savior, may those persons come today and say, I want to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Lord, we would welcome that opportunity to pray with that person. Lord, others may feel a need to come publicly just to stand or to kneel, but in a public way, say, Lord, I want to forget my past, sins and successes. I want to pursue a future now that includes you in every way, in my ambitions, in my attitudes, in my actions, to pursue you, that my life would count for you. And Lord, forgive each of us for the distractions. We are an extremely distracted people. There's such, so much going on in the world in which we live. And we become preoccupied with lots of things. But may we never lose our focus, our supreme focus, on you.
Now, Lord, this is your time, and it's the time for the people. Have your way in our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm standing down to the front. If I could keep my mic on, because I like to talk when we're doing the invitation. Let's sing together as Brother David leads us. And if God is leading anyone to come for prayer, I would welcome.